0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Maybe I'm, I don't have such a strong view that this person is an idiot in fact, since I can't really explain what it is that they want to do. Stats. What
1: we need is stats. If Dickens' hard-nosed utilitarian Thomas Gradgrind were about today, he'd surely be knee-deep in sage announcements and ONS data bulletins, trying to work out what the heck is going on with this virus. In the absence of a fictional Victorian schoolmaster, who better to lead us through the numerical mire than Tim Harford, economist, author, broadcaster and TED talker, whose new book, How to Make the World Add Up, is the perfect guide to seeing through the statistical fog. It's far more than just a handy spark notes for numeracy, though, as Tim delves into the deeply held psychological biases that can steer us in the wrong direction, and urges us to examine our emotional response before we hit share or retweet. I've been a fan of Tim's books and columns for some time, so it was a total pleasure to interview him about a book packed with insights and wonderful nuggets. Like, what do the inner workings of a toilet tell us about political polarisation? And the answer isn't as obvious as you might think. There's quite a lot of books about statistics. I mean, I think of, for example, The Tiger That Isn't, which was by um, Andrew Dillnott or John Allen Paulos's Enumeracy. But I think where yours books a little bit different is it's not just about kind of the maths or the data of it, but the way of the importance of controlling our emotions as well when we look at uh, data.
0: That's absolutely right. Uh, it really struck me, particularly during the Brexit referendum and, and the U.S. presidential election of 2016. I, I found myself uh, with the, with a team from more or less on Radio Four, trying to give people the facts to to understand the issues, to explain what was going on. And, and of course, it became clear that quite a lot of people on on all sides were not that interested in the facts. They had particular views of the world that were shaped by their ideology, uh, their preconceptions, their values, what their friends thought, none of which I think is is shameful. And they reasoned accordingly. And most of the, the factual information that you might provide was basically just treated as ammunition for an argument. Like, Does this back up what I already wanted to believe or not? And I realized, okay, those are extreme examples, but it's often true that what we believe is shaped by what we expect to believe, what we want to believe. And I thought, well, there's no point in writing a book that purely furnishes people with technical advice as to how not to make mathematical mistakes or statistical mistakes. I'm not also going to offer my perspective on how to think more clearly and not just be carried away by our own motivated reasoning. So that's what I wanted to do with the book.
1: Yeah, I mean, you set out the book in in 10 rules, a kind of 10 commandments, if you like, and your but your golden rule that you say at the end is be curious. And I thought reading the book, perhaps another kind of way of expressing that is you're saying kind of tame your intuition. So you don't say that you should ignore your emotional reactions to things, but
0: you should know which way they're pointing you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, the first rule is to notice your emotions, not ignore your emotions or suppress your emotions, but to notice them. I think if you notice that a particular statistical claim that you're being confronted with is uh, provoking a strong reaction of, of denial or vindication or wait, you know, that can't be true. Or wait till I share this with everyone on social media. It proves I was right all along. If that is your, your reaction... I think you're going to think a lot more clearly about the world and about the claim that's been made if you pause to notice that. Uh, so that that I think is really is really important. As far as our intuitions are concerned, there's another chapter about what to do when statistics conflict with personal experience. I mean to borrow terminology from Daniel Kahneman, there's the statistics fast and slow, right? So you've got you go to a place, you meet people, you see things. You've got this incredibly rich detailed visceral view of what's going on you can also understand the world by looking at spreadsheets and i'm not making the argument that you might expect from a from a geek that the spreadsheets are inevitably superior um but neither are they inevitably inferior so there's a real challenge and i think an opportunity to to figure out how to get the best out of both to combine that personal experience with the rather thinner but potentially less biased and more comprehensive view that you gain from the spreadsheet you gain from the data
1: yeah and the example you give in the in the book is that going on a london tube or a bus where the stats will tell you that the average train has only 100 130 odd people on it but you know when you get on it there's 10 times that and but it's only through your personal experience that you realize there's more to that original kind of set of data
0: Yes. I mean, that particular example I, I love because it's, so, um, it's such an elegant statistical point that's going on there. So, so to imagine what's happening, if you imagine 10 trains, one of them's got a thousand people on and the other, the other nine have zero people on, just the driver. So what's the average occupancy of the trains? Well, it's a hundred. Okay. Um, what is the typical experience of a person riding on the train? Well, every single person riding on the train rode on a crowded train because there was nobody on the trains that didn't have any people on. Uh, and that's how you can get these statistics that suggest that the London bus network and the London underground network are actually rather sparsely occupied. And at the same time, every time, obviously not in the time of coronavirus, but pre-coronavirus, every time you get on a train, it's packed. And again, not to say the statistics are wrong, because if you're running uh, Transport for London, you want to know the utilisation of the system. You want to know the, you know, the energy per passenger, the carbon dioxide emissions per passenger. These things are important, but you also want to know what experience the passengers are actually having. So this is a really interesting example of trying to combine information that seems to conflict, but actually is is they're two sides to the same coin and they make perfect sense when you think about them in the right way.
1: And I think it's, I mean, there's a point we'll come on to later with COVID, which is an absolute treasure trove of statistics and data, but I mean, it gets to the point about what you're counting being just as important and it's often something we don't really think about when we look at a claim and and think well is that actually the worthwhile metric that we want to be want to be looking at
0: yeah the, the the experience of the average passenger is not the same thing as the experience of the average train you would think they basically get at the same thing but they don't get at the same thing at all and very often we um we think we know what's being measured and we leap to conclusions accordingly and we don't know what's being measured at all a nice example is there's a whole literature on um video games, and do video games lead to violence? Do violent video games lead to violent behavior? And a lot of people have views about this based on their preconception, like they, they obviously do, or they obviously don't. But actually, when you think about it, you realize, I don't really know what you mean by a violent video game. I mean, Pac-Man? Pac-Man <laughs> eats people alive. Well, I mean, yeah. not alive, they're ghosts. But, you know, is that, I mean, that's pretty... It's pretty fierce, but that's probably not what people have in mind when they when they say violent video game. But what do people, when when these researchers are studying this, well, what what do they mean by violent video game? And until you know that, you don't know much. And then what do you mean by play? Do you mean we got people in the lab for an hour and got them to play for an hour? Or do you mean we found somebody who plays these games a lot in reality? And then what do you mean by violent behavior? Uh, do you mean oh, we we have evidence of real world offences, grievous bodily harm, getting, getting into fights, or is it more, there's some test that we give in the laboratory that gives us some, some correlation to violent behaviour. And there's this thing called the, uh, the hot sauce paradigm, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. which measures, your, measures your willingness to add chilli sauce to a drink that you know someone else is going to drink. And I, I don't mean to sort of say, well, and, and one way of doing this is obviously nonsense and another way is obviously correct. I'm just saying, if you don't know this stuff, but you're immediately leaping to an opinion about video games and violence and what the research shows, well, you're sort of—you're not only are you forming your opinions based on no real knowledge whatsoever, but also this stuff's really interesting, and shouldn't you show an interest? Because actually, what these scientists are doing and what they're finding is—is is the kind of stuff that we should be interested in. I mean, uh, just from a personal point of view, when, how long do you think did it take you personally
1: to kind of inculcate these? mental habits. And when you see a, a jazzy graph, do you do you still have that visceral reaction where you go, ooh, or is it, mm, what's that x axis playing
0: at? yeah Well no, I, d- I still have the visceral reaction, but I notice it. So I think I'm I am uh less prone to just casually retweet. Um but I mean certainly it's taken time. I certainly remember tweeting stuff. So within the age of Twitter, within the last last sort of 12 years or so and then being being sort of embarrassed by my own behavior. So one example was, I remember seeing a graph, which I think was from the Washington Post. It was from a reasonable source showing uh, dramatically increasing support for for same-sex marriage. Uh, And I've got strong views about this. I think that's definitely a good thing. And I saw this graph and I was like, great, more and more people are on the the right side of history and just retweeted it, spread the good news. And the first reply to the tweet was, him have you looked at the axes on that graph and my heart just sank oh god what have I done because of course I hadn't I just it was that emotional reaction of like oh this is good I'm going to share and the the axes were a complete mess I should have clipped the graph for my bad data visualization file rather than just amplifying it but there you go I I think I'm sure I still make those mistakes but hopefully I make them a little bit less often It probably makes my Twitter feed a little bit less interesting.
1: Yeah, I really liked the chapter about um, visualization, actually. I think that was one of the most, uh, the ones that really made me think about the way that you can present graphs. For example, there's one where you present the deaths in the Iraq war,
0: hmm.
1: one where it goes up and, and one where it goes down with red. And I, f- I found that kind of fascinating.
0: It's Yeah, so the first graph is, is titled Iraq's Bloody Toll. And it's by, if I remember rightly, by Simon Scar and won an award. Uh, and it's a, it's a very powerful graph, and it shows the death toll in Iraq. It's it's a bar graph in red, and the bars are hanging down from a line at the top of the graph. So it's as though someone just gashed across the paper, and the blood just oozed down over the paper. And you look at it, you just go, oh, it's terrible, the, the the tragedy there, the loss, the waste. And then a guy I know a little bit called Andy Cotgreve who's a data visualization expert, just as a sort of demonstration of the emotional power of this graph, literally flipped it over. It just sort of took, I think Microsoft Paint or something and just turned the graph upside down and then painted it a very cool kind of soothing corporate gray, sort of bluish gray, kind of thing you can imagine a corporate, lo- like an IBM logo or something. And he just relabeled it Iraq death toll on the decrease. And so he just robbed the graph of all its emotional power and described what it was showing, which was the deaths, there used to be a lot of deaths and now there are not so many deaths. And both of those graphs are perfectly valid, I think both those graphs are telling the truth about the world, but it's just a reminder that um, the way you package a graph, the way you package exactly the same information, can have a very, very different emotional impact. And this wasn't even a complicated transformation of the graph, it was absolutely the same information, crystal clear, but just with a different emotional temperature.
1: Yeah, I was also fascinated to learn about Florence Nightingale's con- contribution to this field because I had no idea that she was. I'm slightly ashamed actually when I read
0: wow, it. She think she is an she I is didn't amazing. Know that she was
1: a statistician, <laughs> like
0: yeah. So she she was so she was friends with with all these sort of great um, mid nineteenth century figures such as Quetelet and Babbage, and um, she moved in those circles, uh, of course. There were some limitations on what she could do because of the fact that she was a woman, but she was also very high born and very well connected. She was the first woman to be uh, a member of the Royal Statistical Society and famously, of course, served as a nurse in Istanbul, dealing with British Army casualties coming back from the Crimean War. But after that experience, she formed a hypothesis about the importance of sanitation and hygiene in preventing disease and then had to make that case to a sceptical military and medical establishment. So the the chapter is partly about her efforts and, and the efforts of her collaborator, William Farr to use data visualization to make their case, to make their arguments. She was very calculating about the way she did this. I mean, she was absolutely on the right side of history. But at the same time, some of the graphs she used, they're a bit naughty, they're a bit clever in the way they present information. So I try and pick them apart and, and show what she's done and uh, how else you might have drawn the, that graph and how, how differently the, the information looks even though it's got the same data there. So yeah, she's, yeah absolutely fascinating character
1: and it's also quite a nice illustration of the way that a sort of
0: a story
1: gets told about a person in Florence Nightingale's case that you know she was a nurse is how mm. people kind of know her but actually the realities are a lot more complicated now
0: I mean the medical a, I, mean, I have to say she's yes. I think a lot better statistician than she was a nurse right, exactly. Um,
1: so yeah and a very good data visualizer as well as you point yeah. out the rose diagram is a real kind of a very artful way of presenting those statistics um but i mean obviously with the pandemic you started writing or you were still writing the book rather in sort of march february of this year so it was just at the beginning i mean do you when you look at the way that covid's been been covered you know what are the kind of key questions do you think that kind of layman would consider when being slightly sort of pummeled by data
0: yeah so I mean, the first thing to say is that the the book was nearly finished when we went into lockdown. And I then asked my publisher for an extra month to, to revise it in the light of COVID, because COVID was really underlining the point that I was trying to make, which is that this is not just a question of, statistics are not just about political communication and spin, they're not just about selling stuff or about winning arguments. They are a very important tool for understanding what's going on in the world. And of course, when the virus hit, it was it was the most amazing example I mean it's a hell of a way to be proved right it wasn't a lot of fun being proved right in this way because it's been a it's been such a traumatic experience for everybody but it was it was a very simple exercise to go through the book and to go and coronavirus is a good example of this point and, and coronavirus <laughs> is a good example of that point and just you could point to very specific very fresh examples um, so to come back to your question about well what should the average person do be doing to make sense of the, of the COVID data. So, okay, number one, uh, I'd be immediately suspicious of anybody who's trying to argue something. Someone who's trying to explain what's going on and help you understand. Um, that, that's, that's the kind of person I would be looking for. When you've got people who are really trying hard to, to make a particular case for a particular policy response, you're unlikely to get the full picture. Uh, and you're unlikely to get a fair picture and in some cases you may get a very dishonest picture although some, some people have been worse than others in that regard. So first of all just try and look for someone who's just trying to explain what's going on. Like here are the graphs, here's what they mean, here are the flaws in that data, here's another way to look at the problem. The second thing I would say is there are, is more than one way to see the problem. So for example in the UK you can look at cases in terms of the official case count. What we've seen recently how flawed that can be. The newspapers love it, the TV loves it because you get new data every day, but the data are really, really noisy and biased in a number of ways because they're, they're the output of our testing system and our testing system is not perfect. But you could also look at cases as, yeah, I mean, I was just maybe putting it mildly, but you could look at cases um, as modeled by the Office for National Statistics. They can come out every week. There's a delay, um, there, are, there are margins of error hopefully a much less noisy view of what's going on you can also look at hospitalizations what's happening to hospitalizations and of course you can look at deaths and there's no one answer to understand how the virus is spreading There, there you know there are different things if someone's trying to make an argument they'll pick a particular a particular data set or a particular data point that makes their argument. But if someone's trying to understand what's going on, you would expect to have to look at more than one source of data and to try and go, well, what what does this collage of evidence tell us about what's going on? And um, what what questions and what puzzles does it throw up? Which is all about, you highlighted this virtue of of curiosity. I think it's it's really important. Um, The world's a really interesting place it's not always a simple place. And so actually wanting to know more and being willing to go deeper and to get a second opinion and to go another click is really going to help. And we can all be curious. That's not, that doesn't require any technical skills. That's a habit of mind and requires a bit of patience and and a bit of interest in the world.
1: Yeah, it's something that struck me when reading the book is, as well as you talk about people having different Views or prejudices, but often people have different objectives as well, and that can colour the way that you see. So, like when we come back to Brexit, you might you might say that some people are ignoring facts, like "oh, the economy is going to get worse." But for a lot of voters, they probably say, "well, I don't care. That's not what it's about for me." Do you think there's that, is that a fair way of putting it?
0: Yeah, no we've we've all got different uh, we've all got different perspectives. We've got, all got different values. So the same with COVID. We all want to be able to go about our lives, you know, as we did, and gather together and and party and go to music venues and go to restaurants. Uh, we also don't want to get sick, and we don't want our loved ones to get sick and die, and we don't want our health service to be overwhelmed by COVID cases. Well, it turns out we probably can't have all of these things at the same time. So then you have to start going. Well, how would you how do you trade off those different goods? The the good of, of freedom the good of people being able to develop their livelihoods and the good of not getting sick and not dying or, or children's education. I would hope that people would be able to present a balanced view of the evidence and to say, well, look, there's uh, you know, these are the, these are the pros and cons. These are the choices in front of us. Unfortunately, these things get polarized very quickly. And, um, you know, every time I write about the subject, I get angry emails from both sides um, for <laughs> deploring my, uh, well, some, some people just deplore my centrism, full stop. <laughs> right. other, people, other people just think I'm an extremist on whatever view they don't have. Um, but there you go. <laughs> You've got to try.
1: Yeah, I think it's the peril of having an opinion in the modern age is you're going to get bombarded. I mean, Do you think there's anybody who has struck you as doing a, doing a particularly good job of uh, elucidating the COVID data?
0: Uh, yes, I. I mean, I would be remiss to to not mention uh, my colleagues at the Financial Times, led by John Byrne Murdoch, the coronavirus tracker at the FT, which is. F- Free for anyone to look at. I think it's been very good, and John's been fantastic on Twitter as well, really explaining why he, the decisions he's made and why he's made them, and you know what what you learn from them. Uh, another great source is the Our World in Data website, and um, the uh, there's the Johns Hopkins University has a great collation of data from around the world, and I would say actually the, the Office for National Statistics. Um, here in the UK has, has done a good job. They've got great data for England and Wales. They really rose to the challenge, and they're doing a huge survey now of the population. I think that in the last two weeks, hundred thousand people have been tested purely for the purposes of so, trying to figure out where the yeah. You know, there you go. Where, where the virus I mean, is. Just for the
1: listeners, I'm holding up an ONS survey kit. In fact, they come every single week and uh, and test everyone in my household. Which is it's
0: amazing, sad. and they and they come. T- they I, I'm right in thinking, am I that they they come and and supervise you while you're doing it, right? They really uh, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. actually,
1: I'm, af- I'm afraid to say to him that it's been a bit
0: of a shambles. Oh um, no! Don't tell me that. I, 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 I want uh, yeah. to, I want to filter out that piece of information. Uh, tell me about it.
1: Notice that they're coming. Yeah. And they'll ring me and be like, "Are you in tomorrow?". I'm like, no. Okay, so we'll yeah. just meet your wife and daughter. So then they'll have to do a separate visit to come and see me. <laughs> it's all. Uh, Slightly um yeah But yeah, I mean it's uh it's an incredible piece of work. And it's also just um it's done like by a postcode lottery, as far as I can tell.
0: Yes. They're trying I mean there, there are there are flaws in it. For example, the fact that as I understand it, it doesn't include people in communal living arrangements. So care homes, prisons, okay, fine, no big deal. Oh, university halls of residence, not included, could could very rapidly become an issue in the quality of that data but you know these these things are hard it's it's difficult to get really solid data and we should I think not take it for granted and, and I recognize the flaws in what's happening but also recognize the amazing efforts that are you know are required to to help us understand the world around us
1: yeah, that's um something that has really come through. I mean, not just from my personal experience of um, having people driving around London trying to get my test and stuff, but from the book, when you talk about other countries, and we, in as you say, we're very lucky to have the ONS, which produces an enormous range of statistics. If you go on their website, I mean, they, it's everything. Could, you can imagine it's on there. But you mention in the book, for example, in, I think it's Tanzania, perhaps, or Uganda, where... The chief statistician is threatened with death if they produce that
0: statistics. I, I yes, I I didn't reveal which country. In fact, I don't know which country that was in. Um, okay, I was just I was told told that by Denise Leavesley, who's uh, one of the pillars of the British statistical community, but also does a lot of work with statisticians from around the world, and she told me yes, one one African statistician who she did not name was told his children would be killed if um if he did not produce the results that was required but i think tantania it it has been made against the law to criticize the government statistics that um so uh and and in india the unemployment statistics just kind of disappeared a few months before the election you know the government said oh we're gonna we're doing some work to make these statistics more robust they just vanished um and of course some of these striking examples of uh the head of the Greek statistical agency being prosecuted for treason and that case being thrown out and reinstated about six times. It was extraordinary. That's been going on 10 years. Or Argentina, uh, Graciela Bavacqua, who, who was gathering inflation statistics and was was told, or um, well, that, that she had to round them down. Even if it was two point nine, that had to be rounded down to two. If it was one point nine, that had to be rounded down to one. It's as though Argentina had kind of run out of decimal points. Um, I mean, this makes a huge difference to the if that's monthly data. Huge yeah. difference yeah. to the to the, the when you compound it up to the annual data. And she was eventually effectively forced to resign for not producing the correct results. And then when she did so in the private sector, she was fined a quarter of a million dollars for false advertising. Uh, so I mean, these, we're, we're lucky to, to live in a country where statisticians, I'm sure they come under some political pressure, but it's nothing compared to what is experienced in some parts of the world. And it, I think it's a reminder of the importance of these statistics. We take them for granted we kind of chuckle at them and, you know, we laugh when they go wrong and we sort of, we shrug about them. But if they, you know, if they really were so unimportant, dictators and autocrats wouldn't go to such extraordinary lengths to threaten or bully the people, the men and women who collect them. They do matter.
1: Yeah, and just briefly returning to the importance of statistics and and COVID, I mean, is there, do you think there's a silver lining that the public hopefully are a lot more interested in data and statistics now than they might have been six months ago or do you think that'll kind of wax and wane
0: no i think there is a silver lining i mean it's a pretty it's a pretty dark cloud and it's a pretty slim silver lining so i I don't want to sort of be looking on the bright side too much but yes we have received a painful lesson that this stuff matters that the 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 numbers are the way that we understand the world, that we measure the spread of the virus, that we understand who's at risk most and who's not at risk, that we track the spread of things such as long COVID. Um, They're the way that we evaluate treatments. Uh, You know, dexamethasone works. uh, Hydrochloroquine doesn't work. We know this because of robust use of statistics they're how we're going to test the vaccine and know that it's safe and know that it works this stuff really matters and to to relegate statistics to to just another branch of rhetoric just another way that governments and advertisers spin stuff I think would be would be tragic and it's very easy to fall into that trap I think even my fellow geeks um you're trying to explain statistics to somebody and kind of the simplest and funniest way to do that is to talk about people getting it wrong and to, to go into that debunking mode. I think if that's all we do, we risk giving a very skewed view of, of what these statistics really are and how useful they can be. Do you think there's a risk too
1: of statisticians or mathematicians kind of gatekeeping a bit and making it seem more complicated and impenetrable than it is to the, to the general public?
0: That's, yeah I mean it's always a risk. I think that of course, it is complicated. Of course, there are many traps for the unwary. But I think that one of the arguments I want to make in the book is that fundamentally, the kinds of questions you need to ask to make sense of statistics, they're questions that anybody can ask. It's, it's not that hard. We should all have a little bit of confidence in our own um, I wouldn't say common sense. But our, our own guided common sense, or our own tutored common sense, a little bit of practical advice can get any of us a long way to asking the right questions and to making our world add up. We
1: started off the podcast talking about Brexit and, um, you know, how facts were, a lot of people were sort of impervious to facts. But one of the things that I, thought I really liked at the end of the book was that you point out a way that you can still get people to change their minds now the way I'd phrase the question to you would be can you tell us what the inner workings of a toilet tell us about political <laughs> polarization
0: yes I mean i wouldn't I wouldn't phrase it as as trying to get people to change their minds but I think there is there is a way to get people to be more interested in what's true and what's not true and yes where does the toilet come into it so this is a wonderful study into a phenomenon called the illusion of explanatory depth you say to somebody how how, how do you reckon, how confident are you in your ability to understand how a zip fastener works? Or how would you rate your knowledge of how a bicycle works or how a flush lavatory works? And people will generally be fairly confident. They think, yeah, I kind of, yeah, I sort of know how, how a zip fastener works. And then when you ask them to then explain in detail, give them a pen and paper, ask them to, to set out in bullet points and to draw diagrams, people very r- quickly realise that that sense they had that they could explain in depth was an illusion, hence the phrase, the illusion of explanatory depth. And they back away from their previous confidence. and They say, actually, I don't really know. How, like, why, how does the water disappear around the U-bend? And how does it get replaced with clean water? I mean, I don't, how does that happen actually? Um, it's very interesting, this, but the same thing is true. You can do a similar exercise by talking to people about policy proposals. So we're starting to realize, oh, um, the customs union and the single market, I thought they were the same thing, but it turns out they're not the same thing. Um, I know that much, but do I really know more than that? You get people again to rate their knowledge of, do you know what the single market is? Um, Do you know how a a cap and trade system works? Um, Do you know what it means to impose unilateral sanctions on Iran? And people again will say, yeah, yeah, I think I I, basically know that. And then again, when you ask them to explain, they realize they don't, they don't have a clue really how one would go about imposing unilateral sanctions on Iran or what exactly the the, the difference is between the single market and the customs union. And what's interesting about that is not only do people recognize the limits of their own knowledge, but when they've gone through that exercise, they start to moderate their views. Oh, I thought this person was an idiot for suggesting that we leave the customs union but now I realize I can't actually explain what the customs union is or how it differs from the single market. Maybe I'm, I don't have such a strong view that this person is an idiot, in fact, since I can't really explain what it is that they want to do. So people become more moderate, people become more respectful of people on the other side. Uh, they're more willing to accept shades of gray. And so the whole, that whole area of research to me suggests that we should be having more conversations where we ask each other to explain things rather than to justify things. Because if we're having an argument about the single market, and I ask you to explain what the single market is, then either you're going to learn something or I'm going to learn something, or maybe both of us are going to learn something. And the mere fact that we're not trying to persuade each other of anything, I think is helpful.
1: Well, I think that's a really lovely note to end on. So ask yourself plenty of questions, but also ask other people questions and you might find out a bit more about the world. Absolutely, absolutely. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you.